Our reading of the word comes from 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful day, God, that we can uh, celebrate once again your goodness on this Sabbath day. God, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear, uh, give us minds to understand, uh, give us uh, hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us from your holy word this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think that many of us could say that we've had experiences with either a, a person or a situation where you, you went into the relationship with that person uh, or you went into that situation thinking it was going to go one way or thinking that this person uh, was, was something, and then you realize once you're kind of in the midst of it, oh, this is not what it seemed to be a couple of weeks ago. This is not how I thought this job was going to be. This is not how I thought this person was going to be. Uh, this is not how I uh, imagined this vacation to turn out or this move or whatever else it might be. So when Tara and I counsel couples before marriage, before they get married, I always read this description from Paul David Tripp's book, uh, Broken Down House, and he uh, describes this very idea when it comes uh, to how we view the one we want to marry, which he describes as or calls location amnesia, uh, saying that we forget uh, in our life that we, that we live in a broken world. So we have location amnesia. And so because we have that location amnesia, we have unreal, unrealistic expectations within this broken world. And marriage is one of those, just as an example. So let me just read a, a few passages from this book where he tells this kind of story about it. He says, I think many of us live in a permanent state of location amnesia. We have forgotten where we live. Lose sight of the fact that this is a broken down house where nothing works quite right, and it sets you up for all kinds of trouble. Let me give you a prime example. Marriage. Part of the problem is the creepiness of the dating practices in our Western culture. Honestly, most dating is only about a half a step from used car sales. To put it bluntly but accurately, the idea in Western culture, dating is to sell yourself. 
the last thing you want is for the other person to really get to know you. So having presented one another with only their best behavior, the man and woman each convinced themselves that they have found a nearly perfect person as they move toward that day when they will actually begin living together in the world's most comprehensive relationship, they do not factor into their expectations the difficulties of life in this broken-down house of a world. Then, when the marriage takes an unexpected turn, they are shocked, saddened, and utterly unprepared. Six months after the wedding, the wife is crying and saying, This is not the man I married. But of course he is. He is precisely the man she married. It's the guy she dated who was the fake. Now, that is, a lot of y'all are going to have some conversations, married, married <laughs> folks, uh, this afternoon. But, but that is, that is a, a way in which we, uh, we, we see it one way because we want to see it that way. And then, uh, and then things turn out and we go, that was not what it seemed to be. Well, this is Peter's point in his second letter to the churches in Asia Minor because he is, he is, pointing out to them some in their midst who aren't what they seem. They may look a certain way from the outside. They may uh, play a good game for a while to, to fool those around them. But these Peter identifies as false teachers or false prophets have come in amongst these churches with their own poisonous agenda. And as we'll see, Peter is very blunt in his warning concerning them. Peter doesn't pull any punches because he knows this poison has the potential to take down the church and ruin lives. So we'll break down his warning in three ways this morning. Hopefully we'll all be helpful. So first is the identity and impact of false teachers the identity and impact of false teachers. Second is the judgment of the false teachers. And then third is the preservation of the righteous. So identifying false teachers, and then a little hope is brought in because we see the judgment of the false teachers, and then even more hope is brought in because we see that God preserves the righteous. So first, the identity and impact of false teachers. Look at verse 1. There in chapter 2, Peter is coming off of, remember these letters didn't have chapter and verse numbers when Peter first wrote it. It was an actual letter, Um, but we break it up because we need that um, to help us understand what what they're saying. And so Peter is looking back over verse uh, chapter 1, and then he goes into chapter 2 here in verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So looking back at chapter 1, Peter begins chapter 2 by turning his readers' attention to the false teachers they will encounter. He's not saying if you encounter these, he's saying when you encounter these, false teachers, because there is nothing new under the sun, right? He says, for false teachers have always existed amongst God's people. In the Old Testament, we saw false prophets. That was what uh, that chapter from uh, uh, Isaiah was about. There was false prophets then, and there are false prophets now. G.K. Chesterton, the, the Catholic theologian, he once said, 
There are no new lies, no new heresies. Man is simply not that creative. And that was true in Peter's day, and it's true in ours as well. Wrong teaching and bad theology is nothing new. It's just repackaged for a new generation. So in verse 1, you may have noticed Peter quickly switches from false prophets to false teachers. And the reason he does that is because he does not want to give them a title that is associated with true prophets. So he begins to call them false teachers. So as much like uh, me, I have, a, I have a hard time calling uh, charlatans like Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or Mark Driscoll and giving them the title pastor. Because I don't want you to be confused between a, a true shepherd and a false shepherd. And those false shepherds are actually wolves. So from the, from the very beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning in creation, a, a pattern for false teachers is laid out by Satan himself in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Flip back there. Flip, flip to Genesis 3 with me re- really quickly. It's pretty easy to find. First book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And you might be, you're probably familiar with this. Uh, it's when uh, Satan comes in to tempt, tempt Adam and Eve. And this is how it goes down. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here is the the pattern that we see here in these verses is the same pattern we see with other false prophets and false teachers throughout the Bible, but also even now. So the first thing you see is that the word of God is questioned. Did God actually say? Next, the word of God is then denied. Satan says very clearly to Eve, you will not die. You will not die. And then finally, the word of God is distorted. It's twisted. And so Satan claims that instead of dying, Adam and Eve would become like God himself. That, that really, what's really happening, Adam and Eve, Satan says, is that God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to experience your best life now. He, want, he, he wants to hold back from you. And so he distorts the truth of God's word. So externally, Satan appears to be one thing. He he appears to be uh, an animal uh, that that Adam has has already named. And he's just kind of roaming there about creation uh, and and all of its goodness. He appears to be one thing. He's He's this innocent questioner, right? Someone who is opening their minds to things unseen, allowing them to think for themselves, giving them the freedom that they deserve. But internally, he is something completely 
different. The same is true of false human prophets and false human teachers. Externally, they appear to be a Bible teacher, using words uh, that sound appealing. But internally, they are something completely different. In Deuteronomy 13 in the Old Testament, we are given specific instructions on how to distinguish between false prophets and true prophets. It says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, so what a false prophet says may come true. What a false teacher um, says may sound appealing, may sound truthful, may sound like something encouraging and something that you want to grasp onto. But, but the author of Deuteronomy is saying, if they take that truth, and they begin to distort the very word of God, then God says, do not listen to them. So it goes with false teachers today. Some of the things they may say are true, but if, this, if they use this truth to distort the very word of God, do not listen to them. But God says, instead... See such a thing as a test to see whether or not you truly do love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So I hear this sometimes amongst people who uh, don't like the fact that I might point out that church or that pastor uh, that, that is teaching a false gospel, and they will say something like, like this. Well, places like that, like that have their place in the kingdom. And yes, they do have their place, and that place, God says in Deuteronomy 13, is to test the true believers to see whether or not they truly love him. That's their place. To see whether or not you are going to to fall to a false prophet or a false teacher and follow in their ways and leave the Lord your God. So is your mind and heart truly in tune with the gospel? It's the question you ask yourself. And if so, if you and if your heart and mind is truly in tune with the gospel, if so, you'll be able to recognize very clearly and very quickly a false prophet or a false teacher when you see or hear one. Listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 through 15. He's warning the church in Corinth about false teachers. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds." So one major aspect concerning false teachers that Peter is trying to convey 
is that they, these false prophets and these false teachers will rise up from within the church, not necessarily from outside the church. So we can see that in his use of the phrase among you and in his use of the, of the word heresies. So Paul, just a, a side note, Paul gives a similar warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. This was, this was a problem that, that, uh, that was affecting the church through, in the New Testament, but also throughout church history and today. And so Paul warns the elders. He says, and he's leaving, he's leaving them. He's never going to see them again. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So what Peter is saying is that that the heresy will be that which causes dissension and factions within a local church. That's what this, this word here for heresies means. It means dissensions and factions. And that is our greatest danger as a local church. So it won't necessarily come from the big bad world that we're all so afraid of at times, but it will come from within the church. So we've already seen how easily something like that can happen. I mean, during the pandemic just a couple of years ago, I saw churches split and cease to exist because of the, the ideology of wearing masks or not wearing masks on both sides or, or meeting or not meeting. Churches that do not exist any longer over those silly things. But even more so today, We're seeing the infiltration and influence of ideas that have come into the church like critical race theory and Christian nationalism or the theology of progressive Christianity. Uh, And they're making their ways into the churches. And what's happening is they are essentially replacing the gospel of Jesus Christ within these churches. Which is exactly what Peter says will happen at the end of verse 1. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Yet even though this will be the result, Peter gives a grim truth to the churches in verses 2 and 3. Look there with me. He says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So what Peter is saying here is that the influence these false teachers, uh, the influence that they will have will not be a small influence. It won't just happen over here in a small corner. Rather, they will have significant impact on the church. And this impact will be devastating for many. So maybe you find yourself, maybe you're here and, and, you've, and you've, you've, you kind of find yourself in this sort of theological conundrum. Maybe you've been, been hurt by a church with false teachers that served up bad theology and, and poor teaching that uh, the gospel was absent from, from the pulpit. 
And this has left you confused. It has left you disoriented. It has left you suspicious. And you know what? I don't blame you for feeling that way. But you know what? God cares about the pain that you have walked through. He doesn't want you to be confused or disoriented or suspicious of his bride, the church. So you are not without hope in that. Because what we learn in our next point, and the second point, is that while these false teachers will wreak havoc on the church, and they are doing that even as we speak, they will not get away with it indefinitely. Because the judgment of the false teachers will come. Look at verses 4 through 6. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter is confident that God will judge these false teachers because that's what he's done in the past. So Peter is looking back at the Old Testament story and saying, this is exactly what God has done. He has punished the ungodly. He has brought them to justice. And so he gives three real-life examples from the Bible to prove this promise to his readers, and they're specifically taken from the book of Genesis once again. And he takes each in order as they happened in history. So, so first, in verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So, Genesis chapter 6 is where Peter is pulling this particular incident from, which is known as the, the, the climax of humanity's sin. It's right before the flood. So this is the climax of humanity's sin. So if you go to Genesis chapter 6, this is where the, what the author calls the sons of God. The sons of God intermarry with the daughters of man. So I, we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis for the past two years, and so we'll finish it up next year, the beginning of next year. But when I preached through this chapter a couple of years ago, if you remember, I said there are two ways, so there's a couple of of ways, there's actually like six or seven ways, but a lot of them are just weird. Um, but there's two ways that you could look at it and you could be okay uh, where, where, where you landed on uh, and how you interpret sons of God. So one is to see sons of God as fallen angels, and the other is to see them as kings or, or those men who fall outside the line of promise, the line of Jesus. So I... at that time, I took the stance that I, I believed they were kings, but in my study of First and Second Peter, I am inclined to change my stance here. So nothing, nothing to be afraid of, everybody. Everybody calm down. Um, but I think just in reading more of what, of what the scriptures talk about and reading some commentaries, sorry, Siri, commentaries that I read from much smarter people than I uh, that give strong evidence that Genesis 6 is referring to angels coming down and marrying human women. 
And this is how God responds to it in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So when it's here, in this moment, in Genesis 6-5, that Peter says that these angels were cast into hell, bound by chains in the gloomy darkness. To say that God did not allow them to sin against his people in this way any longer, and so he places them in a place where they can't do that anymore, and they await the judgment day there. So what this means is that God protects his people from the spiritual forces that are at work in the world. So that's the first example of angels being judged. The second example of judgment Peter makes reference to in verse 5 is the flood from Genesis 6 through 7. So if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here Peter illustrates two things. One, that God is capable of using extreme measures when dealing with sin. He sent a flood that wiped out the entire world, every living creature, except those things that were on the ark. The second thing it illustrates is that he acts specifically to save his people. So Genesis 6, verses 7 through 8. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, a specific people, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. So that's the second example of judgment. The third example of judgment is in verse 6, is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapter 19. And I love the language that Peter employs, employs here in verse 6 to describe this particular judgment. He could have just said, and he destroyed the wicked, you know, and moved on with that. But he says to the, his readers who are struggling with false teachers and false prophets infiltrating them in the midst of this hard situation where they are also being persecuted at the very same time, Peter says to them these encouraging words, to ashes he condemned them to extinction. To ashes he condemned them to extinction. To ashes he condemned the evil to extinction. There's nothing left of them, Peter says. Their, their judgment on earth was final. So what Peter is demonstrating here is that in the fullness of time, God will judge the wicked. It's what he's always done and what he will continue to do. And because all, all three of these judgments, uh, while, they're, while they're judgments on the earth, all three of these judgments act as types of universal judgment that will happen at the end of the age when Jesus returns. So Peter is saying here to the church, take heart. Your God is with you and your God is for you and he is against your enemies. He hates the wicked and he will deal with them in due time. And to confirm this message in our last point, 
the preservation of the righteous, Peter gives two strong examples of how God has already done this to show his readers that God will do it again. Look at verse 5, and then we'll skip to verses 7 and 8. Just to reiterate, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So there's two examples here. The first example Peter gives in God's preservation of the righteous is Noah. The flood wasn't completely doom and gloom. Even though Noah's generation was wicked, Noah still found favor with God. Why? Genesis 6-9 tells us, Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in this generation, Noah walked with God. So Noah, Noah was one of the first to, to look ahead to this coming Messiah and to trust and believe that God was going to fulfill his promise. That's why Noah was saved. He wasn't just some random person that happened to make it through the mess of his day. He was looking to his God who he knew was going to provide a Messiah, a snake crusher. So he was a man chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and he demonstrated this chosenness through his belief in and pursuit of God Almighty. So even Peter adds a bit more to his life and ministry here in verse 5 when he calls him a herald of righteousness. So this means it took him a, a roughly 120 years to build the ark. So uh, Obviously, we know Noah didn't just go silent during that time. He didn't just stop talking to people and just concentrated on his work. I'm sure many a people walked by and asked him what he was doing, what are you building, and he was able to tell them, I am building this because my God in whom I trust and in whom I believe is going to destroy this wicked world, and this is our means of escape. Repent and believe the gospel. He was a herald, heralder of the gospel. He was preaching the gospel to this wicked generation. And just as God preserves Noah, he's also preserving you, Christian. Peter has already told us back in his first letter, he tells us in chapter 3 that the ark that saved Noah and his family is a type of Christ. That's what the ark is pointing to. The ark is pointing us to Jesus it's pointing us to something that's, 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 that's the greater ark. It's, it's the greater rescuer, and that greater rescuer is Jesus. And the only way we can see this, and the only way Peter's readers can see this, is if we resist the enticement of false teachers and false prophets who will lie to you about the gospel. So the faithful, like Noah, will be vindicated by God. So Noah is the first example. The second example of God preserving the righteous is found amongst the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter makes this uh, striking statement in verses 7 through 8 
when he says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And, and the reason I say this is, is striking is because of our study of Lot's life this year, uh, when we looked at this very incident in, in Genesis. Uh, and we learned that Lot, Lot wasn't the most upstanding man of his time. He wasn't very bright, you might say. Um, he, was, uh, he was not called as Noah was called. Instead, uh, we see him sort of blow it. So if you recall, uh, the angels, uh, two angels are sent into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to warn Lot concerning the destruction of the city. And this city is so wicked. They, 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 they chase after these men because they see them as these angelic beings. And they say, well, this will be a new sexual experience for us. So we need to go after these men and we want to bring them out of Lot's house. And so Lot, uh, Thankfully, locks him inside, and then when he comes out, he says to them, hey, you know, don't, you guys don't do this wicked act, and instead of just kind of fighting them off or just kind of going inside, he offers his daughters to this wicked mob. And so obviously Lot had his faults. And there's still much debate over why Peter would call such a man righteous. And when you start reading the commentaries on this, there is arguments back and forth of why he called him righteous. But I think those who would have a problem with this, would have a problem with calling a man like Lot righteous, forget that they too have made their share of foolish choices. Choices that we would not classify as righteous. And I'm sure that some, if you, you know, you, you, you've become a Christian, and I'm sure you, you might have had a, had a past at, in high school and college, and then you end up running into those high school and college friends, and you tell them about this, they're just like, no way that you are righteous. After all of this stuff that you, you've done, that you did, how can God declare you as righteous? The same is true here, as Peter calls Lot righteous. God in his mercy has rescued him, and he rescues you, and he calls you righteous. And that's the only way that you can be righteous, is because of what God has done in Christ to make you righteous. So even more to the point, Peter is writing to an audience uh, tempted to waver and to doubt in the face of opposition and fear, And therefore, Lot is actually a great example to them. So here is a man, righteous Lot, who lived in the most wicked city that ever existed in all of history, and he did not cave to its temptations. He was not one of the wicked chasing after the angels. He was one that was rescuing them. So Peter says in verses 7 and 8 even that that Lot was actually greatly distressed by the sin he saw around them, so much so that it tormented his righteous soul. He knew it went against what the Bible teaches and what God wanted. And so God preserved him, just as he's preserving you and I. To which verses 9 through 10 shed light, Peter says if, if God can rescue Noah... And if God can rescue someone like Lot 
out of a wicked and seemingly impossible situation, verses 9 and 10, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in these last two verses, Peter is weaving together the examples of of divine judgment and the examples of divine uh, preservation to show how God worked and is working amongst his people. So the Lord knows how to preserve the godly in their trial. So if you are walking through trial, God knows how to preserve you and to protect you and to bring you through it. Even though it might be dark for many years, God is with you. He will not forsake you. And he knows how to keep the unrighteous uh, for the future day of judgment. So God knows what he's doing. He knows how to take care of his righteous, and he knows how to take care of the unrighteous. So Peter's focus is not on internal temptations to sin here, but on the external situations that could lead you to sin. The church is, the church is living amongst a people who are teaching lies, and many are going to follow their ways. I've lost many a friends to bad teaching and bad theology. Men and women that I went to seminary with that you would think would have great theology and would never falter, and they're lost. And, it, and the reason is, is because the message is appealing. It's almost easier to believe a false teacher or a false prophet. I can be a, a follower of Christ and live in any way I choose. I can live out my sexual freedoms and uh, have my indulgences and not have to answer to any authority and still be a Christian? Well, that sounds amazing. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that version of Christianity that you are dishing out. But we know that simply isn't the case, is it? That Christianity is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card and then you can go and live however you please. No, Christianity is, is, is rescue from darkness. Christianity is resurrection from the dead. Christianity is, is giving the blind sight. And you don't respond to that sort of message with a sinful lifestyle. Instead, you respond with a life full of gratitude, love, and praise toward a God who loved you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. We don't repay that sort of sacrifice with a life of sin. We repay it by a life spent for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you give us uh, a letter like Second Peter that's still with us, that's still just as true as it was when Peter first wrote it to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, it is true for the church here in Augusta, Georgia. And God, I pray that we would take it all to heart, that we would be, that we would be on our guard against those uh, who are false teachers and false prophets in our world. And we have so much access to, the, to these uh, sorts of teachings and teachers. God, so we pray for your protection upon us. We pray that you would give us great discernment.
that we would be a people who are uh, a people of the word of God, that we would uh, plunge ourselves into its depths so that we might have minds that are being transformed uh, continually by it. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.